The word dramaturgy is unusual enough that my phone's autocorrect function changes it to dramaturgy. Even for theater makers, the concept is nebulous enough to prompt articles about it in major newspapers with headlines like, What the Bleep is a Dramaturg? In my dramaturgy classroom, I aim to demystify dramaturgy as an art form by recognizing that, as scholars and theater makers, we all already commit acts of dramaturgy regularly and enthusiastically. In my books, dramaturgy is an act of creation and more of a mindset than a set of rules, regulations, and duties. I'm Professor Molly Seremet, and it's such a thrill to welcome you back for season two of Writ in the Margins, a podcast that harnesses dramaturgical thinking as a performative act of creation. This podcast was conceptualized, researched, written, produced, and realized by the graduate students in the Shakespeare and Performance Program at Mary Baldwin University. For season two, we are bringing you 13 episodes that unpack, investigate, reimagine, and sometimes even push against five wildly different plays. El Muerto Dissimulado, or Presumed Dead, by Angela de Azevedo. The Antipodes, by Richard Broom. The Island Princess, by John Fletcher. Loa to the Divine Narcissus, by Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz. And Life is a Dream, by Pedro Calderón de la Barca. These plays sit alongside Shakespeare in the universe of early modern drama, but each has its own unique terrain and orbit. And each episode offers a close look at key features of the landscape from a dramaturgical perspective. In their research, students have deployed tools of structural analysis, contextual synthesis, and creative intervention, and have intermingled their research with performed scenes, original music, and special features galore. Feel free to listen to the episodes in this season in any order. I hope you'll also go back and revisit season one as well. Do visit our website for show notes, transcripts, and bibliographic materials. We appreciate the support of Mary Baldwin University's Shakespeare and Performance Program in this endeavor. Now that's enough for me. On to your episode of Writ in the Margins. tired of men. Do you think that the world of patriarchy is terrible and stupid? Would you rather live in a fancy house with all your female friends and never have to talk to men again? Well, have we got the place for you? Lady Happy has created a new convent, the Convent of Pleasures, for all women to join. Requirements must be willing to hang with the ladies, participate in plays, and ignore men at all costs. Come on down to the Convent of Pleasure. For every sensual pleasure take, and all our life shall merry make. Our minds in full delight shall joy, not vexed with every idle toy. Each season shall our caters be, to search the land and fish the sea, to gather fruit and reap the corn that's brought to in plenty's horn with which we'll feast and please our fast but not luxurious make a last we'll clothe ourselves with softest silk and laid in fine as wine as milk we'll please our sight with pictures rare our nostrils with perfume and air our ears with sweet melodious sound with substance can nowhere be found our taste with sweet delicious meat and savory sauces we will eat Shall be the change.
my name is Macy, the censorship witch. I'm Kelsey, the queer witch. And I'm Rosemary, the feminist witch. And we are the, the, the weird, weird sisters. sisters. <laughs> oh, we did that so well. <laughs> we did so well. If the witches of Macbeth got together to make a podcast about an amazing play written by a super cool lady, that would be this podcast. You may be wondering why three witches got together to talk about an old play, and that's because we three cannot resist a story written by women, about women, and for women with magical elements. It's a witch's delight. We have joined together our three forces, censorship, queerness, and feminism, to talk about this wonderful restoration play, The Convent of Pleasure by Margaret Cavendish. For a quick plot summary, The Convent of Pleasure tells the story of Lady Happy, who opens up her own convent after being dissatisfied with men. Women from all over come and join this convent, and Lady Happy soon falls in love with a visiting princess. Pastoral scenes, nymph scenes, maypoles, and all sorts of fun ensues. The princess is later revealed to be a prince. Oh. And they get married and live happily ever after the end. One thing that fascinates me about this play is that the plot structure isn't linear per se. I mean, the characters like don't follow the traditional Aristotelian plot. Yeah, they kind of go from scene to scene, having a good time and talking about the convent and the love between Lady Happy and the prince, but that's about it. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's so interesting because I do a lot of work in the world of queer theory and the plot structure of Common of Pleasure is a perfect example of queer narrative structure. <gasps> say more right now. <laughs> in queer theory, we try and find queerness everywhere in a story. While it's easy to look at the characters of a play for queerness, I personally have been fascinated by how the story itself creates a queer space and time. Ooh. Traditional narrative structure features characters who have desire that drive them towards a goal, ending in a climax. Sexy. Oh my. Oh, yes. <laughs> but in queer narrative, and especially what I study, which is asexual narrative structure, that's not necessarily the case. Queer narrative structure is not linear. It does not have to stick to time. It can meander through different settings. We can spend time and linger on long pastoral scenes or, you know, nymph scenes and not worry about sticking to the traditional plot and desire structures. Mm, sounds familiar. As it should. <laughs> Common of Pleasure totally has a queer narrative structure. The world of the convent that Lady Happy creates allows them to live outside the context of heterosexuality, both literally as the characters and figuratively in the world of the story. The characters can waste time, go from place to place, and not worry about the overarching capital C conflict. <laughs> the play focuses on Lady Happy and the princess's relationship instead of following a regular A to B to C plot. The play quite literally creates a queer space and time for the characters to live in. Why is a queer narrative structure uh, important to the play? Like, can it be applied in production? It sure can. The queer narrative structure allows a production to be more loosey-goosey, I would say, with time and space. And, you know, allowing them to go more freely between everything without having to worry about making it a correct play. The convent can now be a queer space and the actors playing the characters can explore the characters' queerness of their identity within this queer space and time. Oh, and these characters sure are queer, aren't they? Oh <laughs> my oh. God, they play with gender, <laughs> they play with desire, they play with relationships. There is so much queerness in this play and it creates just such a space for queer joy to thrive. We mm -hmm. love to see it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for that overview, Kelsey. You're welcome. 
<laughs> well, now that we've given you that excellent plot summary and discussed the queer structure of the play, we now thought it would be a good idea to let you hear some of it yourself. One fascinating part of the Convent of Pleasure happens in one of my favorite early modern tropes, a play within a play. <laughs> Once the princess arrives to the convent, the women of the convent decide to put on a play for the princess and Lady Happy. Because, you know, that's a normal thing to That's do. a normal thing to do. Your friends come <laughs> over and you're like, I, here's a play. Like, you just throw out, here's, here's one. <laughs> like, what I favorite is like the play features many short scenes with women of all ages and backgrounds discussing the pain that men inflict on them in their daily lives. So, you, you know, same. Like, <laughs> the moral of the story? Men only cause pain. And this is the common of pleasure. So who needs men? For real, though. <laughs> the uh. sisters will now transform into these characters and play a few of these scenes for you. Oh, Ooh. goody. Ooh. We, will, we will use our magic powers regarding sensitive queerness and feminism and looking at these scenes. <laughs> this particular part of the play occurs at Act 3, and it is a series of short scenes commenting on women's struggles. Today we will specifically be focusing on scenes six through eight, as these particular scenes highlight these struggles through the lenses of young women, old women, and even <gasps> men. <gasps> we are nothing if not inclusive. <laughs> oh, good, good. And now we bubble. Woo. Scene six. Enter a citizen's wife as into a tavern where a bush is hung out and meet some gentlemen there. Pray, gentlemen, is my husband Mr. Negligent here? He was, but he has gone some quarter of an hour since. Could he go, gentlemen? Yes, with a supporter. Out upon him, must he be supported? Upon my credit, gentlemen, he will undo himself and me too with his drinking and carelessness, leaving his shop and his commodities at six and sevens, and his prentices and journeymen are as careless and idle as he. Besides, they cousin him of his wares. But was it a he or she supporter my husband was supported by? A she supporter. Oh. For it was one of the maid's servants, which belongs to this tavern. Out upon him, knave. Must he have a she supporter in the devil's name? But I'll go and seek them both out with a vengeance. Pray, let us entreat you stay to drink a cup of wine with us. I will take your kind offer, for wine may be a cha chance to abate choleric vapors and to pacify the spleen. That it will, for wine and good company are the only abaters of vapors. It doth not abate vapors so much as cure melancholy. In truth, I find a cup of wine doth comfort me sometimes. It will cheer the heart. Yes, and enlighten the understanding. Indeed, and my understanding requires enlightening. Exupe. Scene seven. Enter a lady big with child groaning as a labor and a company of women with her. Oh, my back, my back will break. Oh, oh, oh. Is the midwife sent for? Yes, but she is with another lady. Oh, my back, oh, Juno, give me some ease. Exude. Scene eight. Enter two ancient ladies. I have brought my son into the world with great pains, bred him with tender care, much pains and great cost. Must now he be hanged for killing a man in quarrel when he should be a comfort and staff of my age? Is he to be my age's affliction? 
I confess it is a great affliction, but I have had as great, having had but two daughters, and them fair ones, though I say it, and might have matched them well, but one of them has got with child to my great disgrace, oh. another run away with my butler, not oh. worth the droppings of his taps. Who would desire children since they come to such misfortunes? Exult. Oh, great job, guys. Oh, yeah, good job, everyone. <laughs> Yay. And back to normal and reset. <laughs> but that's just part of some of the great scenes within this mini play. I love it because it really highlights the different struggles that women went through during that time period. Uh-huh. Like just the fact that the scenes were so short really brings home that these issues were nothing more than glanced at in normal society. Like these women do not ever actually get a true scene. Even in the excerpts that we just performed, the longest scene had male characters who don't really address the issues which the female counterpart is enduring and simply encourage her to drink her troubles away. Drink some wine, girl. It's not okay. <laughs> like it's just it's just oh, it's just so such a powerful statement that Cavendish is making. Like these short scenes also seem to reflect like fun fact, they also seem to reflect on specific aspects of Cavendish's personal life, but more on that later. Let's get into the textual conditions of the play. A little bit about the playwright, how the play was written, all that fun stuff. Oh, let's start with a biography of the amazing playwright herself, Margaret Cavendish. Yes, let's do it. <clears throat> Ready for a wild ride, guys. Here we go. I'm so excited. So absolutely. Margaret Cavendish. Formerly, Margaret Lucas was possibly born in the year 1623 and died on December 15, 1673. Her mother was a single and widowed and was held in awe by the people around her for, quote, grave behavior, end quote. Ooh. Y'all, she, like, she, like, literally, so remember those, like, old women who were just like, oh, I hate my life kind of thing? This yeah. is, that's her mom. She also had a brother, had, like, his, her brother apparently had his house raided because he was, quote, a contentious Colchester landowner, end quote, that antagonized lower orders within the area during the Stour Valley riots that occurred on August 22nd, 1642. Oh, no. Obviously, he's not the best male inspiration, you could say. No. He's in a lot of issues within the family dynamic. Oh, gosh. Uh, dangers of war when, her, when she was young actually caused her to move from Colchester to Oxford to live with her sister, Catherine, so basically, she just left her brother behind. She goes, F you. <laughs> like, Goodbye. Like, bye. Well, there in 1643, she actually became a maid of honor for Queen Henrietta Maria. Another for strong, her. Right? Another strong female inspiration. She's amazing. Oh. She was at, uh, so Cavendish was actually notoriously shy, and it was very difficult for her to interact with others while she was at court. However, she got the courage to actually talk to one William Cavendish, hint, hint, wink, wink, that's her husband, Marquess of Newcastle upon Tyne, who was a current widower and, quote, a defeated royalist commander at Marston Moor. Defeated. 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 Love is is blind, y'all. She just looked past (laughs) all of that. (laughs) Great. She was like, okay, I'll give him a chance, even though, whatever. Their courtship was highly discouraged by Henrietta Maria, for good reason. In Mm -hmm. fact, she greatly opposed the idea. However, the couple married anyway in 1645 in the private chapel of Sir Richard Brown, and they had no children, even after seeking fertility help from a physician named Richard Ferrer. So that whole, like the struggle with childbirth and like that, mm-hmm. like, the, like those, like that's referenced throughout the play and that particular scene, 
that might be based off of a true story. Though she was not able to have any children of her own, she actually did help raise Newcastle's three surviving children from a first marriage, which wasn't pleasant later on, which you'll, I'll, I'll tell you more about that in a second. So her, her brother, Sir Charles, was then executed in 1648 for being a royalist. Oh, great. So at this point, she has a really bad taste, bad taste in her mouth for like war, brothers, men. <laughs> like she just has a, like that, like none of it. Um, her husband was also then constantly letting her down regards to financial decisions. And he was, as he failed to, quote, obtain the court office she thought he deserved, end quote. So he's just failing. He lost the battle. He's, like, losing money left and right. He can't even get a simple court position. She's really, like, Lord. So during all these hardships, she actually began to publish writings such as poems and fancies, as well as philosophical fancies, where she actually became to get a lot of a reputation for being a philosopher and writer for her own credit. Mm -hmm. And not to mention, she actually began running the Tuchel estate she took the like she started running it as opposed to her husband which led to an increase in revenue as well as estate improvement including a mansion good for her you would think right you would think that would be like wow that's amazing however rather than being grateful for these improvements many including her stepdaughter thought she was just doing it to increase her own funds in hopes of her husband's death right like, wow, real nice. It's just real nice. <sighs> and something I also find hilarious is that while they were visiting London in 1667 to promote her husband's plays, it was Margaret who actually stole the show because she was cross-dressing in men's apparel. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what an icon. Good for her. <laughs> and then she was met with a lot of hate, <clears throat> jealousy. Yeah. Mary Evelyn, who was daughter to Sir Richard Brown, make this statement, public statement, that she, quote, was surprised to find so much extravagancy and vanity in any person not confined within four walls, end quote. And she continued, like, in multiple statements were made of that nature. And amongst these delightful compliments include her being called obscene and vulgar and an unapologetic flirt. That's amazing. Fun fact, like, those are my titles too. Like literally, <laughs> just because she dressed like a man and was confident in her work, like that, like wow. Basically, Cavendish had a lot of legitimate reasons to be angry about the patriarchy, and she made her mind known in the Convent of Pleasure. And you know what, girl? Same. <laughs> Many of the plot elements and seems seem to actually reflect what was going on in her own life, because you could see the cross dressing, you see the struggles yeah. with finances, you see the struggles with childbearing, like all like from personal experience. And we look at it if we look at it through this lens, it just gives whole new meaning to the play, and I think it's amazing. It's interesting because she, the plays that she wrote, mm-hmm. are what we call a closet drama. Mm-hmm. Um, and closet dramas are plays that were written to be read aloud in a group domestic setting instead of to be like performed on a playhouse or on a traditional mm-hmm. stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, this brings the traditional sense of performance into the domestic and social setting, meaning that the art just didn't belong to the men on the playhouse stages. Women could do it at home in these closet dramas to themselves. So Cavendish is empowering women here. Yeah, uh, the, clo- the closet dramas weren't meant to ever be really produced though. And you can tell because they often featured really over-the-top fantastical sequences, (laughs) scene changes that are impossible to do, um, other elements that just would make like how does the scene just vanish? How does she have it? Yeah, she had she had scene directions that was like the scene vanishes. 
And you're like, great, where, how? So how does it being a closet drama affect if someone wanted to perform it? Yeah. Uh, they, they weren't meant to be performed, but instead they were imagined. You're supposed to imagine what you're seeing in your mind. So mm-hmm. it significantly changes how a production can put on the crazy scene changes of scene vanishing or yeah. the impossible sets of like being in the middle of the ocean. Some scenes <laughs> yeah. take place in the middle of the ocean. How do you how? do that? How? Oh, oh God. You could say like a production will need to work a lot harder to pull off these fantastical elements, especially if like producing with modern day theater practices in mind where we just don't really think about this. But here's a fun question for you. Mm, is the play that. within a play that we just talked about, is that a closet drama? Oh, snap! (laughs) Hear me out, hear me out, hear me out. It's performed in a domestic space, the convent, with a community of people, the women, as opposed to on a traditional stage with men in costumes. Uh, Closet dramas weren't ever meant to be publicly performed, so they were not privy to the same types of censorship at this time, Mm. Macy. Uh, (laughs) Therefore, closet dramas themselves inherently created a subversive space where women could write about their troubles and beliefs and get to share their ideas through the public outfit outlet of communal reading and not be censored you just With, oh, oh yeah without God. that fear of censorship <laughs> that was that that was such a thing during this time period oh well, yeah exactly but like wow that just was in my mind a little bit <laughs> oh. if we look at the play the little play within the play it doesn't have a title so we're just going to be calling it play within a play if we look at the little play within a play as a closet drama itself we can get a better understanding of why it was included in the larger play in the first place. And the fact that they're in the convent itself, they're, they're, they literally are in their own little utopia away from men and the horrors of heterosexuality where women are free <laughs> to express their ideas and live without the traditional gender roles, especially when it comes to theater. This makes the play within the play one of the most fun parts of the convent of pleasure to me because it literally holds a mirror up to both its own creation and existence and the rest of society. So what about the parts of the play that start with the quote, uh, written by my Lord Duke? What's that all about? There are some scenes which start off with the phrase written by my Lord Duke, which is a reference to her husband who seems to have added plays to the scene, like scenes to the play, I got that backwards, after it was written. In physical, if you look at physical printings of the plays that exist today, it appears that the phrase written by my Lord Duke had literally been typed up after the publication of the book and uh, glued glued at the top know. of the scene, hand glued <laughs> in. God. So yeah. she just really wants us to know that she did not write any of these things. <laughs> she no. did. Written by my Lord Duke appears like three times in the play. Uh, yeah, it, 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 there's once um, before a verse monologue that a shepherd gives in the pastoral scene, a uh, second before a song that another shepherd sings in the pastoral, a lot of pastoral, and a mm-hmm. third is just a scene with Madame Mediator crying that the women had been tricked by a man, being like, oh no, we were tricked. I, oh, I wonder why Cavendish should wanted to clarify that these parts were not written by her. Maybe to, like, celebrate the parts that were written by her? Most likely, yeah. (laughs) Maybe to give the Duke credit, but I highly doubt that. Uh, (laughs) You know, know, it can also possibly to assign parts of the play that she didn't like to somebody else. (laughs) You know, that's most likely. (laughs) At the end of the day, we won't ever know, but 
the fact that she went through the whole process to add written by my Lord Duke means that she thought it was important enough for the understanding of the play as a whole to know which scenes were written by a man. Mm-hmm. So that makes me wonder, how does written by my Lord Duke, uh, that aspect of it, how does that affect performance? You know, because uh, you know how when we do Shakespeare, people will take out scenes by Middleton or like scenes yeah. that they don't think are Shakespearean. So they can yeah. do the same, people in production can do the same thing and choose to include these scenes or not. It's not like there's a traditional plot they have to follow that the scenes are mm-hmm. desperately needed for. So it just depends on what the production wants to get across. If, the, if it is important to the production to be original text, then include the scenes. If a production would rather be like, we're doing female writing and female issues and we're talking about women, maybe take the scenes written by men out or mm. give some sort of nod to the fact that a man reads through these scenes in the production itself. Mm-hmm. That's super interesting. Right? Yeah. You know what else is interesting? What's interesting, Macy? <laughs> Please, we have to know. Convents in general. Yes. I must know about convents. <laughs> Tell me now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so typically in order to form a convent, um, you had to be a member of a certain church most likely Catholic, Um, you had to affiliate that convent with a specific parish or community and then adhere to the teachings of a specific order. So in Catholicism, at least, that could be, you know, Franciscan, Dominican, Carmelite, or uh, Benedictine. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of those orders have different philanthropic and everyday teachings and goals, but they're all at least connected and one within the Catholic Church and its theology. But is, is that's not is that what, that's not exactly what the is that what common of pleasure? Convent? No, it is not. <laughs> Interesting. Lady Happy's convent it does not adhere to any teachings of a unified church. Great. Um, and. The theology or like the beliefs of the outside community aren't ever really established. Mm. Yeah. So this lack of specific religion other than, you know, capital and nature mm. um, brings up the issue of how exactly it is that Lady Happy was able to start her own cloistered convent in the first place. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It made me question why no one in the community, her community at least, uh, took issue with the religious portion of the convent. But oh, yeah. did yeah, but did take issue with the fact that women were no longer available for marriage. <laughs> you, know, you know what's funny? If I can jump in on that, what I yeah. learned a fact about one of it, like especially in the French Catholic convents, um, women were it was like a convent. If you if a woman chose not to be married, like say she was a widow and didn't want to get married again, or she was just happy being single, she mm-hmm. would her choices were join a convent or go to prison. great wouldn't the comment come with like the expectation of a religious order so like how does this apply as a convent well most of the characters do mention capital n nature as an entity uh Mm -hmm. so it's possible to assume that because her convent was not related to a church organization that she wasn't being heretical uh, or breaking any kind of church rules by opening it Gotcha. Um, But the question that that brings up is the issues of taking vows or joining a convent because you have to take, you know, vows of poverty, chastity in other convents. Yeah. Um, But the conditions of this convent seem to be that one, first of all, must choose to live there 
and then give up the outside world. Uh, they must only believe in the freedoms and the pleasures that they will have as long as they stay within the convent. Thank God these ladies can live outside the patriarchy. Exactly. <laughs> um, the only reason that these teachings are, I would say, a subversion of the beliefs outside of the world or of the outside world um, is because they directly challenge the patriarch patriarchal structure in many ways. Mm. So marriage for men um, meant that their access to women was a proprietary exchange, you know, okay. from she was the, the property of her father and then her husband. Mm. Um, and they were often an asset rather than a partner. Yeah. Um, so the independence of the women in the convent essentially showed that women are capable of one, taking care of themselves and exercising or recognizing their own agency as humans. Women as people? Right. <laughs> so the moral of the story, women are people. Well, women are people. Yes, <laughs> totally agree. Well, I think that just about covers it. What do you think? <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We hope you go out and read or possibly even perform this awesome play. Do it. It's like, now we will take some inspiration from the epilogue of the Convent of Pleasure and perform an epilogue of our own. <clears throat> Noble listeners of this podcast. We know not what to say, except we are done, I guess. <laughs> we dare not beg applause, even though we know we thus killed it. For we are witches. And can do no wrong. If you dislike our podcast, we, we do, do not, not care. care. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Written the Margins. On behalf of my awesome students, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. All opinions shared on this podcast belong to episode hosts and their special guests, and do not necessarily reflect the positions of our places of work and study. Please check out our show website for more resources, including show notes and transcripts. Now don't be a drama turkey. Listen to another episode.